Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, episode 33. Before we hey, get man. started... Oh, hi. hi, Matt. You're allowed to say hello. How are you doing? We, we, don't, we don't always get the chance to say hello right at the beginning. We don't. But now I've interrupted you and you've lost your train of thought. Oh, that's okay. I didn't have a whole train anyway. Um, <laughs> we usually do a little uh, five, ten minute discussion before our episodes. Audience. I guess, I guess you two who are here know that already because we just did it. But audience. And um, generally, we kind of chat about what's going to happen in the episode and make some stuff up. Um, but there's a big one today. Oh. There's a big Yes. So we, it's two things. Number one, we have a new segment on the show, which I'll, de- I'll describe in a second. But number two... That is exciting. I'm not very creative. And we also we need help coming up with a title for the new segment of the show. So right now... Wait, First those, try. Were those both the one thing, or was that thing one and thing two? That was that was two things. So oh, okay. let, me, let me reiterate thing two because that was the important one. Thing two, um, if you are if you call yourself a creative person, if you are interested in our show, or you just think that our show sucks and we need help uh, coming up with interesting content, you can submit your ideas for this new section of the show. We're looking for a title for this thing on the software underground. Where's that, Matt? Swung.rocks. Yeah. Yeah, it's in Slack. So yeah. you'll, you'll need a Slack account stuff. But yeah, you can go to HTTP swung.rocks, sign up there if you are into, well, if you're into this show, I guess, and if you're into coding and rocks and whatnot. Uh, so thing one, back to thing one is the new <laughs> segment right now, maybe for only one time, is called Riddle Me This. Whoa! Oh, I should have. Is that this. a Joker reference? Is that where that comes from? I, I don't know. It was just the first thing that came into my head, which is yeah. I feel like yeah. it's the thing that the Joker says right before he. I was trying to come up with a sound effect to say to use while I said that. Okay, so anyway, riddle me this or whatever it's eventually going to be called is a puzzle, which we will share with you every week, and we'll give the answer the next week. So. Because this is the first time doing it, at the beginning of the show, we're not going to give you the answer because we haven't asked you a question yet. But at the end of the show, we will have Riddle Me This, and maybe I'll use this sound effect. (laughs) Or maybe not. (laughs) Okay, so anyway, submit your ideas. Tell me a better name than Riddle Me This. Okay, so um, who do we have on the show today, Matt? Today we have Lucas Mosser. Uh, who is a grad student, a PhD student at uh, Imperial College London. Um, maybe he, we, um, we've had several people from Imperial on before, but I don't know if we've ever got a full explanation of the whole, is, like, I, I'm never sure whether it's just to say Imperial College London, Imperial College, Im, Imperial School of Mines, uh, where, or if those are two slightly different things, is the mines in the college, anyway. Maybe we can get that cleared up. And um, I've, uh, I don't actually recall 
how we crossed paths originally, Lucas, but it was probably not very long before the hackathon in Vienna. Maybe that was the the thing. Well, but anyway, <clears throat> yeah. That's where I I've met, been, I've met been him in person. Following, I guess, Agile Geoscience for quite a while uh, before the hackathon. But um, yeah, we really got in touch for the hackathon then. So yeah, right. Yeah. And so uh, you you were kind of generous enough to be a kind of uh, impromptu um, sort of tour guide uh, in Vienna and help help me organize pizza and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> so thanks for that. So and where are you? Uh, where are you today? Um, well, right now I'm in uh, London, uh, so essentially uh, since, of course, I'm doing my PhD here, but right now I'm working from home, essentially, uh, which is, I guess, the PhD uh, office <laughs> if you're not limited to a, to a lab or something, which um, for what I'm doing, I'm not really. Um, so, yeah. Um, what are just, you doing? Well, essentially... I do a lot of uh, image processing related things, and um, we have we have quite a big group uh, working on pore scale effects. So we look at rocks at really small scales. So that's like single cubic millimeter sized samples, <laughs> and um, it's quite fascinating, yeah, to see that. So um, essentially, the group uh, that I'm working in, they. They're split into two parts. Uh, one is the experimental side. Um, the other side is uh, is really numerical. And uh, we look at, uh, so we do the experiments and we scan the rocks while you have fluids flowing through them. And we try to analyze, you know, why are rocks as permeable as they are and how do fluids interact? How, are, uh, how can we store fluids or how can we get them out? Um, and we do that really on an experimental side, but then there's a big uh, numerical community uh, where we actually try to simulate those effects using finite element methods or, um, or yeah, or reduced order models where we look at poor scale networks, for example. And I personally am a bit uh, taken out of that because what I look at is really how these effects uh, interact or how you can link them. So. Uh, I span the two groups a bit. Cool. It's my understanding that yeah. you are somewhat of a finite element specialist. Is that true? Um, no, no, not not really. No, um, my education is actually purely in uh, petroleum engineering, um, with quite a solid basis, I would say, in in natural sciences, coming from from my undergraduate studies, um, and so. When I got into research uh, during my undergraduate uh, program, uh, the group that I was working with was looking at uh, simulating fractured reservoirs. So um, there, of course, it's important to to try and use maybe finite element methods or finite volume methods. And that's where I really learned uh, the most about that. So it's learning by doing, I would say. But I wouldn't call myself an expert on the, on the subject. The best way to learn, I suppose. So, what is? How did the paper go? I I, I see that you uh, have got have won second place in the international paper contest. Congratulations! Yeah, thanks. What um, is the? Yeah, that was. Give us a summary uh, of the was, paper. Yeah, the essentially uh, one of the one of the issues that you have with finite element based models, if you if you try and uh, and do realistic simulations of reservoirs you know that you can go into petrol and you can build your 
property models and you put in uh, maybe some stochastic indicator simulations or um, object-based models where you distribute your porosities and permeabilities. Um, and there's tools to do that, uh, like Petrel or GoCat or SCUA. But if you want to do that with finite elements, you don't have this one-to-one -one mapping of these, I would say, yeah, rectangular um, control elements um, or grids uh, because everything's um, unstructured. So you have to have some kind of mapping between a structured data set and the unstructured one. So the paper is really about uh, how you can get your realistic reservoir properties from, let's say, a structured grid onto these finite element grids and then use that to simulate something. Do you use like a variable mesh size or determined somehow by geology or the model? Essentially, it's a, it's a bit more uh, brute force. You, what I did was to export uh, a point cloud um, mm -hmm. where you just have the assigned parameters. And then uh, what you have to do is actually find the corresponding elements in your finite element mesh um, that contain these points. But to do that efficiently, um, we used uh, uh, we solved the Poisson equation to to essentially interpolate between values where you didn't have anything, and uh, we already had a solver, um, of course, based on the finite elements that allowed us to do that. So you can just interpolate everything in one go, and that allows you to distribute your properties all along the mesh. So. Uh, it wasn't using any mesh refinement in that sense. That would have been a bit more uh, sophisticated. But um, yeah, for what we were trying to do, I think it was sufficient. Interesting. Interesting. What are you? So, um, are you are you continuing that work in your current research, or have you have you pivoted a bit? No, I've uh, I've actually left that uh, completely. Um, I did some work on on fractures. Uh, in the meantime, um, which really got me into more of these um, image morphological characteristics. Because you can imagine that if you look at a fracture network, it really depends how the fractures truncate and um, how they interact. And there's some really clever mathematics behind that on how you can characterize that. And um, during my master's, I got in touch with um, professors here at Imperial and they had um, similar issues where they were trying to figure out um, how they can actually correlate um, permeability at that really small scale uh, with properties that they can measure in the lab. So essentially I'm continuing on that where we try to figure out what actually controls, for example, permeability at the pore scale and using either stochastic methods or possibly machine learning. So. Interesting. So, uh, Matt, uh, what is the um, frequency of some acoustic energy at which you'd need to image a cubic millimeter sample of limestone? <laughs> I have no idea. That's what it is. I feel like I would just lose those samples. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, it, it, I mean, at some point, you also, I mean, I just thought the boundary effects would kill you at that scale because you've got such a tiny volume and such a huge surface area of the sample that isn't real, you know, or isn't interesting, I guess. Why, why go so small? Well, essentially, um, 
if you want to resolve everything uh, that happens, you know, in the rock where the fluids actually interact, um, and you can distinguish the two phases, you need to dual pores. And right. if your pores are very small, and they typically are, then you just have to be able to observe that at that scale. Right. Some of the processes which really um, are critical, for example, for CO2 storage, um, that occur at that scale. And it's really important to understand why things like uh, wettability, for example, um, influences uh, influences the, the trapping behavior of CO2 in, in a reservoir. And that's something we can observe on that scale if we have that resolution. But of course, we don't use uh, acoustic waves, but it's uh, X-ray based tomography. Right. right. So, yeah. So it's uh, electronic. So you don't have any bandwidth concerns. <laughs> can, can go a bit smaller. Probably. It is. It is quite interesting, though, if you think about uh, different energies. Um, you can actually resolve also different mineralogies in the rock. So hmm. depending on how the X-ray scatter, you get back different. Uh, measured wavelengths and you can characterize your rock based on that. Yeah, huh, right. that's fascinating. So do you, what kind of detectors are you using? Are you using some sort of 3D uh, array of, of detectors to, to receive both reflected and transmitted, transmitted energy? Um, to be honest, uh, I, I haven't uh, worked with, with the micro CT devices myself yet, but we, um, yeah, there's a measurement device essentially that captures the X-ray waves and, and you get an, an estimate of the energy that's uh, transmitted. And of course, you know the output energy as well. So um, from that, uh, the image is then reconstructed. Interesting, interesting. Um, so you're working on a new paper. Yeah. How's that going? And what's it about? Um, well, essentially, it's still a bit uh, top secret since it's unpublished work. Sure. Um, but one of the issues that we that we face with, uh, of course, these micro CT images. To put this into relation, one of these images, when we process them, um, has about a thousand to two thousand voxels side length. So mm. that's an order of a hundred million pixels or more. Sure. And you need to be able to process those um, those images effect, uh, efficiently, and it does take quite some while to do that. And of course, the whole experimental procedure is really um, complicated, and it takes around a day to two days to measure one of those uh, images or to measure a whole uh, cube. So uh, the paper is really going to be about how we can actually use that data and and improve it, um, that we can do the processing in a better way. Um, it's going to use uh, some uh, machine learning. Um, I can't say more than <laughs> than that for now, but uh, it shouldn't be too long until it's uh, out in the wild and I can talk a bit more about it. We are holding our respective breath. And it sounds like uh, your lab or your supervisor <laughs> or you uh, sort of subscribe to a kind of paper-driven research is that, is that kind of your modus operandi? You kind of uh, take it in like mini projects, depending on what you feel like you can write up and we'll make mm -hmm. a good paper? I, I think uh, I think it's it's a good way to to work in a way. 
Um, I, I wouldn't say that it comes from my supervisors, um, but once we once we worked on on these methods and we tried to to apply them, we saw quite quickly that um, we have something that works and that's worth publishing. Hmm. So taking it from there, of course, it's good to document what you've done, and that's already part of of the paper essentially. If you take introductions or um, describing the experimental procedure, um, you can do that more or less while you're running your experiments or your uh, algorithms um, mm -hmm. and while they still train. As long as you have something that gives you some uh, clue into if it's actually working, you can, I think it's a good way to start and, and try and publish it. Yeah, right. So that's, that sense, that's, yeah. it, it's, that's coming from you, that kind of, um, that way of working and driving your research. I think there's a general attitude that um, whatever we take up in the research group should also be, um, you know, something that we might be able to publish. Um, right. But yeah, I think it also came from me that um, I really want to publish it because it's, of course, it's part of my PhD, and part yeah. of that is also exposing yourself to the community and saying, "Hey, we've got something, and uh, we want to show that, and possibly collaborate with other people." Uh, on it, so yeah, right. I think it's a, a really great way of doing it. Um, I wish I'd thought of it when I was a research student. Do uh, do you uh, like what's the sort of um, open access, open source uh, publishing model like in your research group, and how are you finding? You know, I know there are several activists at Imperial on that front. Um, do you? Do you find that people in that department are pretty receptive and uh, is there support there for you to work like that? Um, definitely, yeah. So um, as far as I know, all the newer or all the new publications that, that come out, um, they're all open access. So it's not behind a paywall. Um, and for example, what I'm going to publish is also going to be in a way reproducible, or I aim for reproducibility. Um, there are some people that uh, are advocating that as well in, in other research groups at Imperial, but I think it's really valuable to not only uh, have a paper that you can show, but also all the code and, and data that, that comes with that. Mm -hmm. So actually everything that I'm doing right now is, is all publicly available data that you can get online on the Imperial website. Um, you just have to know what you want to do with it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, that's pretty cool. But then, uh, yeah, it should all be reproducible and, and consistent in a way. So are you going to bring some of these ideas to the Paris Hackathon? Yeah, that would be great. Um, I'm definitely coming to the Hackathon. Uh, I'm, I awesome. might be part of one of the workshops. Um, my supervisors, they... Uh, they're hosting uh, one of the other workshops at, at EHE on poor scale modeling. So you can go and check that out. Uh, sadly, I think it's on Sunday. So we'll be in the, in the hackathon, busy hacking away. But um, um, yeah, I think uh, some of the things that we, that I've learned, you know, mainly looking at unsupervised uh, uh, methods could be something that's really interesting for geoscience in general. So. Maybe I'll come up with a nice project uh, coming along for, cool. for the hackathon. Well, we look forward to seeing you there. Um, you audience people 
heard it here first. Lucas will be there if you want to come pick his brain. He'll be available. <laughs> Matt, I uh, I came across something this morning that was pretty interesting and um, probably of, of uh, value to <clears throat> various people throwing hackathons, etc. Okay. So sometimes it's difficult to hold your audience captive, <clears throat> much like Understampled Radio. We have no way to prevent our audience from falling asleep and or turning <laughs> off the show. <clears throat> the conference coming up soon called Coder Cruise, which leaves out of New Orleans, mm -hmm. is a four or five something day cruise where um, all of the ocean days, they hack around on various projects. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. It, there's no way for you to leave. You got to do something, right? Um, I put a I put a link here in the show notes because I think it's a really neat idea. Um, mm -hmm. They're looking for sponsors, by the way. They wanted me to say, um, and so I think maybe locking the doors to the hackathon or um, you know yeah. something something a little more aggressive than offering free food. <laughs> yeah, we, we we I did get some prices on uh, boats on the Seine. Um, yeah. And it was just a little bit beyond our beyond our reach, but I love the idea of kind of floating hackathon with basically nowhere else to go. That's right. Well, the, I mean, if you're on the if you if you're on a river, I mean, it's just a short swim to shore. Um, see, if you get them out in the true. ocean, you know, you then, really. I mean, I, I suppose they could they could get in a lifeboat and shoot up a flare if things were going badly. But you're right. <laughs> Do we have? Do we have um, a theme, a hackathon if they theme? they care about surviving, maybe maybe it's so bad that it's just like... End it all. I'm off. <laughs> uh, a theme? A, what do you mean? A theme for the, this putative oceanic hackathon? What was it on it? I don't know, Not something about marine geology. <laughs> you want to be towing that. streamers and like a, you know, side scan sonar. Um, send up a weather balloon. All good ideas, um, but really, I was thinking about the Paris Hackathon, which is land-based. Yes, it is going to be land-based. We think. Is there a theme for it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The theme is machine learning. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Good. Well, if that wasn't obvious, I apologize. But yeah. Well, well, I don't think we've mentioned it yet on the show. So um, really? Oh, okay. Yeah. No. Uh, so yeah, machine learning. Uh, and yeah, last time I think I feel like we're we're ready this time. Oh, and there is another thing I want to mention. Yes. Can I remember the URL? Possibly not. Oh, we I always do, do this. have show notes. We actually do have show notes, audience. <laughs> it's just that some of us don't write them, to, write anything down. It's <laughs> such a tragedy. But um, <laughs> if if someone with more wherewithal than me fancies going to my Twitter feed, I think I I've sort of really. Twitter, I'm finding Twitter really hard these days. I kind of, I mean, it's, the world is such a crazy place. Uh, and Twitter is kind of one of the vectors for this, the craziness mm -hmm. in, and the re reaction and response to the craziness that suddenly geophysics feels a bit uh, trivial sometimes. But um, I did tweet something um, recently uh, with a, Essentially, it's a, an attempt to crowdsource some machine learning projects for the hackathon or just for general interest. I did one a couple of years ago on sort of open source tools, like you know, hey, what 
what do you feel like is missing in the open source tool world? Uh, the most conspicuous one I can think of, I think, that came to the top of that list was um, essentially wireline log interpretation software, petrophysical software. Like there really isn't anything. Um, so I put out something, <clears throat> excuse me, similar on a platform called uh, TriCider, which sounds like something to do with cider, but it, but it isn't. Um, here we go. Um, I'll put this in the show notes. And, and, and the idea is that you can go there, look at the projects that people have proposed. I proposed a few, Evan did, uh, some other people have put some in. And um, and you can vote on the, the, thing, the ones that are there already, or you can leave comments, you can add your own. Um, so yeah, it's 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 cool. Are you, okay. are you, are you seeing it? We will, Shall I? We will put a link in the show notes. I always feel a bit sketchy, like running lots of Windows and things. Like I'm a, I'm a horrible user of Chrome. I have at least. Uh, there is there is a link at the bottom that I put down. Thank mm. you. Awesome. Yeah. Um, Lucas, so I think, Lucas, actually, you are now winning the contest for the most complete show notes document here on Understandable <laughs> Radio. It's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's impressive. It's pretty it cool. Really, there's, there's a lot of information here. And, you know, the best part is that it's just another avenue for our listeners to give up on listening to the rest of the podcast and go read uh, the summary there in the show notes. Um, one thing we wanted to get from you, Lucas, and now that we've, yeah. we've done our, our standard uh, Understandable Radio thing and shifted tax here to the machine learning world is get a sense for what you did and how you felt about the leading edges machine learning contest. Well, essentially, um, it wasn't just me. Uh, actually, there was uh, Alfredo de la Fuente, um, who was uh, my teammate. Um, during the contest, and it's not over yet, so <laughs> I don't want to jinx it for more hours and uh, some uh, stochastic evaluation that has to be done, I guess, um, until we can announce who is going to win. But uh, yeah, Alfredo and I, we, we started off and we actually in the beginning, we wanted to look at uh, deep neural networks or neural networks in general, because we thought it might uh, be applicable. And I think in the beginning, we really oversaw one of the main challenges that, that came up during the contest, which is overfitting and the lack of data. Um, I think that was one of the biggest challenges to somehow cope with the fact that you barely have any data. And if you try and, and fit anything to that, you're just going to overfit whatever you're trying to do. Um, one of the big challenges I also saw was um, the actual pre-processing of the whole pipeline. Um, and I think uh, Paolo Bestagini's um, notebook really did that in a proper way, um, where, of course, he also added feature engineering, but other teams have done that uh, as well. But what we, or um, Alfredo and I, really didn't get down in the, in the beginning was the whole pre-processing of the data. So you can actually input it to uh, an algorithm and like XGBoost or a random forest uh, and use that. So I think um, the combination of having maybe simpler models and and this pre-processing step in a proper way is really what, what started to drive the scores up. Um, 
even though I still think that uh, neural networks or deeper neural networks given uh, more data might really shine um, for this kind of application. Do you think that you've learned anything about the data, maybe not size, but um, information density uh, and with respect to neural networks? Do you, uh, let me, I guess, re rephrase the question. How big does the data have to be for a neural network to be effective? And can you, can you, have you learned anything about that in the contest? I think it's a, that's a really good question because essentially that drives how, how small can you make your data set until an algorithm um, starts to break down. Um, since for this application, I mean, we didn't have more data than, than the data we had. Um, so I can definitely say that I think it needs to be more data, even though there's been some, some attempts, I believe, by uh, Yang Xiao, uh, who did a 1D confnet. Um, well, I think uh, something around 0.57, which is quite a good score. Um, and, and that was just using the data that we have. Um, but I think if you really want to, to make use of neural networks and their ability to actually detect features themselves, you just need more data. And yeah, so I, d I don't know how much data that is, but um, it, I think it also depends on the data quality. Um, one of the things, I don't know what your guys' uh, thoughts are on this, because you, or at least Matt, you know what the true answer looks like. But uh, one of the feelings that I always had was that, um, or the distribution of the training samples and the test samples possibly doesn't really overlap, or it's hard to find a, a common denominator, which makes the whole thing uh, difficult. That's more or less a suspicion of mine coming from all the cross-validation, but I think it's an important thing to notice that whatever you're trying to train and cross-validate doesn't actually reflect the score that you're going to have in the end. Right. You need a so. training basis which spans the space, right? Matt, um, yeah. your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I mean, this, but the whole thing, the whole experience has been really, uh, really interesting, and you know, not over yet either. Um, I'm, uh, you know, it's sort of hard to know where to start. Really, I'm really, I was really happy that um, that Lucas and Alfredo showed up in the contest. They've been one of the more prolific uh, teams, I think. Possibly, I, I I haven't been able to keep track of every single. Uh, entry because people, some people make pull requests with like three or four attempts in them and uh, and so on. So it's been a bit tricky to actually keep track of how many there have been. But I think um, Lucas and Alfredo probably responsible for, I don't know, something like 15% of all the entries, um, along with a couple of other people, have probably explored more of the possible solution space than, than most others, uh, having tried uh, neural networks, um, random forests, some kind of crazy autoencoders and other things that I didn't really understand. <laughs> um, and so it's been really fun kind of, uh, get, you know, getting those entries and also just chatting with the, with the participants about like what they're up to. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to do as much of that as I'd have liked because 
a f uh, uh, several of them, not a few, but more than a few of them have been um, have put a lot of thought into the into their work. I mean, these are not you know they're not bashing out um, some quick little psychic learn workflow and see what happens. Um, they're, they're much more considered than that with thinking about what kind of features they need and thinking about it geologically. That, and it's been, you know, another really interesting thing that I think is just a, it's just a, a, a property of geoscience <laughs> is that it's not necessarily the case that profound and careful thought about the geological scenario results in a better prediction, <laughs> which is really depressing uh, and really kind of, I think, arresting for people when it happens to them. But, um, you know, it is possible to sort of overfit conceptual models as well, I guess, is the lesson there. Interesting. Um, yeah, so it's the, I feel like the whole thing's been much a much richer and more interesting kind of experiment than I, than I was anticipating, actually. I feel like you could unpick what's going on in this contest, even given its ragged edges, because we didn't really know what we were doing when we set the contest up. Um, and no doubt some of that will come home to roost in the next few days, but whatever. Uh, I, th I feel like most people have had fun. Um, most people have learned something. And it's, yeah, it, like I say, I feel like you could unpack some of the insights that we could glean from it for, for quite a while. Um, and it looks like we're heading for, that, so there is another, partly because of, um, this is potentially something we could have anticipated, but didn't. So <clears throat> many of these methods are stochastic in nature, right? Like things like random forests even sound like they're stochastic. And so you can end up with different realizations of the model, essentially, and its predictions, or of the, the model training. And so what I'm going to do is take the top X um, entries tonight, uh, de depending on kind of what the gaps look like. Like, I don't want to leave anyone out in the cold, but I also don't have infinite time and resources. But um, I'll take the top few and basically run them 100 times uh, with different random seeds to try and um, get some of that stochastic variance out. And then we'll take the median values. I think, no, it wasn't you, Lucas, that raised this, but it was one of the contestants that raised this as an issue because yeah. I'd been... <laughs> in my kind of naivety thing i'd been exploring some of the ver that variance and in a, in a way and in order to sort of give people the benefit of the doubt if you like i was giving people the highest score that i got in my little brief bit of sampling and i was only running them half a dozen times but as as this individual pointed out that tends to favor the more unstable as he put it more unstable solutions that can be terrible and can be really good and that's not really fair if you're trying to assess how well the model will perform on as yet unseen other blind data. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I don't know, you know, in this context, we're not interested in all that other blind data. We're interested in these two particular wells. Um, so you could say, oh, no, no <clears throat> I'll take the best performance. But I, I buy his kind of concern. So I'll uh, I'll do that stochastic testing. If so the the order may, the scores will definitely change and the order may even change tonight. It's going to be very exciting. 
<laughs> yeah. So tune in, stay, stay uh, uh, interested. Uh, where's the uh, what? What link? Where can we find the scores, Matt? Uh, so the the table that I maintain is at is on GitHub. So GitHub.com/seg/2016-ml-contest. slash slash ml dash contest. Um, or if you just go to GitHub.com slash SEG, uh, you'll, you'll see it there in the repos. Cool. Um, if you were to do this again, or run another ML contest, mm -hmm. would you opt to do the evaluation of scores more on a Kaggle-based system or the, the Numeri-based system, basically, where, you, where the participants submit predictions instead of submitting models? Yes. No. Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> no, I understand. I, I understand. With, with a couple of caveats. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, many of the contestants were relatively new to machine learning. I would say mm -hmm. perhaps most, in fact, were, were relatively new to machine learning. And having someone, even someone like me, look at their models actually uncovered some somewhat fundamental, you know, just rookie errors kind of thing. And, and, and I feel like if all they'd had was, you know, being, being able to submit their results and get a score back from that, it could have been, they, they probably, I don't know if they'd have even figured out what the problem was kind of thing, right? So I'm, I'm kind of glad that I did it that way it, it, on, on some level. Like right now, it's a bit of a nightmare because there's like, one an hour is basically sort of coming in. But um, I also wanted to, I guess I wanted to, there was something about being able, me being able to reproduce the workflow and get the result that was more important to me at the time. <laughs> not, not sure I would be that attached to that idea again. But that, that, it, that the result wasn't just sort of coming out of the blue. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's. Be, being able to arbitrarily submit as many results as you want and automatically get a result instantaneously reintroduces the meta overfitting problem that we that we highlighted at the beginning. Um, so you have to have a blind blind data set held back until the end uh, anyway. And I'm almost unsure that we had enough data to do that. Um, so yeah, there are there are other nuances to it, but. How have you found the mechanics of it, Lucas? Is it, so I imagine bits of it have been a bit frustrating. <laughs> no, it, it wasn't frustrating at all. Um, actually, it was it was quite good that you know you were there to somehow, in a way, also act as a regularizer. I would say that you know keeps keeps you from just submitting a um, hundred new ideas because. Um, um, <laughs> Of course, we know that there's a person behind that. And um, if we're going to submit something, then uh, we want to make sure that it either works or it's it's worth submitting. Um, I, th I found the experience really great. I really liked the fact that there was um, that there was a person behind it that, you know, somehow evaluated um, your notebooks, even if it was just running it and seeing if it would crash or if, if you forgot something um, really obvious, because sometimes that um, might not be that obvious to to you if you create it and you're just stuck in that notebook and mm. uh, and trying to get it to work. Um, so I found that experience actually quite good. 
I don't know what it would be like if you had a, a really automated system. Maybe it'd be possible to have it combined that there's maybe some kind of jury in, in the back that, you know, acts as a, as a guide or someone that uh, looks at individual submissions, um, whereas the submission itself might be automated. Um, but I found the experience absolutely fantastic. It was a learning experience for, for me and I think for Alfredo as well, because we got a chance to really look at all kinds of different um, approaches, like you said, taking, yeah, um, random forests, deep neural networks, autoencoders, and really trying to see if, if these things are actually applicable to these kinds of problems. I want to uh, <clears throat> highlight um, to all of Matt's enemies who are listening to this podcast that <clears throat> if you're really trying to um, get on someone's, <clears throat> Matt's nerves, you could submit 10,000 <laughs> entries to the machine learning contest <laughs> by the end of the day. Um, so just just gonna put that out there. <laughs> um, yeah, you'll to, get a score. Oh yeah, that's right. yeah, oh, yeah, you'll get one. Uh, <laughs> um, hey, let's talk about blogging. So, um, Lucas has done some blogging. It's on there's, yeah. there's posts on LinkedIn. Is there another site where you collate your um, various blog entries or your thoughts or anything sort of formal or informally written? Actually, I've, to be to be honest, I really started uh, with these with these blogs that I put on LinkedIn, which was a bit inspired by by Matt's or Agile's uh, X lines of, of code or X lines of Python, and trying to get something done in a, just a few lines, but more related to petroleum engineering, which of course is um, closer to my background. Mm -hmm. um, so I started doing that and just wanted to see if you could find simple problems that people might run into into a, on a day or on a daily basis or something mm -hmm. that they might want to automate um, and essentially expose people that you know are willing to click on a link that says X lines of Python or uh, on LinkedIn to some new technology that they might not be aware of. So um, yeah. Fair. Very cool. Uh, you you do mention in those posts uh, a couple of different things that are applicable to a lot of semi-technical petroleum engineers. And what I'm specifically referring to is moving from, and this is just one of several, moving from, for example, using Microsoft Excel to using something more uh, granularly controllable like Python. Matplotlib, for instance. Um, why, why do you recommend that? Can you give us the, let me preface this, <laughs> go read the blog posts because they're awesome, but give us the, uh, don't give us the spoiler here. Um, essentially, I think to come back to, to Excel or it's a you really have to take it as a more general uh, question of you know what's what's ideal what's the ideal tool for what you're trying to solve um, Excel might be great if you have something that you want to get done right now and you just want to uh, quickly in a few seconds and show it to someone or give them uh, their Excel file um, but if you want to make something a bit more robust or um, 
even even just the visualization aspect of it, having a nice graphic that allows you to convey information uh, in a way that people can actually understand it and that the data also goes along with that visualization, I think is extremely valuable. And even though people might not be aware of that um, on a regular basis, once they see that they or they're exposed to it, then they actually realize uh, the value of that as well. Um, and in that sense, matplotlib or, or other uh, libraries in Python or R or whatever you want to use um, that are more focused on tools to do that um, really help you to achieve that and to to convey essentially the message of your data in a in a better way than maybe Excel can do, which is more general purpose, I think. Sure. So you can gain or demonstrate more insight from data than you can in some sort of controlled environment like Excel. Yeah. Lucas, what do you think of um, uh, pandas as a sort of a somewhat spreadsheet-like way to wrangle data in in Python? Are you a, are you a fan of pandas? I'm I'm definitely a fan of pandas. Um, my main uses for pandas are input and output. Um, I, I do a lot of work with like simulator output uh, where you have like long charts of time steps with certain rates or um, measured values that you want to get in and out of your Jupyter notebook. Um, so I use pandas a lot for that. Um, I think as a replacement for Excel, I don't think it's it's it has the same intuitive handling. Um, it just makes a difference if you have a GUI where you can, where you have these spreadsheet cells and you, you input your values and you connect, you know, certain operations with each other. Um, in Pandas, you still, it's command line based essentially, or even text based. And I think it just has a higher entry um, threshold than something like Excel. Mm -hmm. um, but for anything where you actually you know, you want to do a lot of reorganization of the data or categorizing it in a certain way, essentially what you would probably do with pivot tables, um, then I think pandas would be a nice substitute if you want to go down that route. Yeah, right. Now, I'm, I'm always just uh, curious about whether, whether and who, uh, whether people are using it and who they are, um, because, I'm still having a little bit of trouble kind of adopting pandas, I suppose. And I, I and I feel like it's as much a mental block as it is anything else. I just never quite know what to do or what kind of pattern I should be looking for if I want to, you know, operate on all the cells that meet some criterion or where whereas I feel like NumPy with arrays I kind of usually know roughly what the approach is gonna look like. I find in pandas, I'm often a bit, a bit stuck for even how to go about doing things. Yeah, I think it's, it's maybe not as intuitive. Uh, you have to sort of learn the individual syntax uh, to do that, and I, mm. I have to you know look it up myself sometimes and see okay, what uh, command would be best uh, suited for. Uh, finding out which columns have a certain value and then just pick those rows and do that in an efficient way where you don't drop the rest of your data. Yeah, um, right. But it does 
for example, in the machine learning contest, what I found uh, really, really nice to use pandas was that you operated on a subset of the data and you sort of took away a chunk of the data. Um, right. And then you thought, okay, well, this is just one part, but now I need to merge that back into my original data set. And that works just seamlessly because it keeps that underlying connectivity. Mm -hmm. um, so I really like that that effect that you can just original table and and there's this connection between the two. You don't have to copy NumPy arrays between each other. Right. Um, so. Yeah, there's definitely cool. some. I mean, I see why it's popular. You know, there's some real elegance to it. I think it's like anything. It's probably just just got to keep keep plugging away and reading reading documentation and and figuring things out one by one. Um, but yeah, this this contest is big. You know, it's really just because Brendan wrote it originally with that pandas data frame at the heart of it that um, it's kind of forced me to get to grips with it a little bit. Well, thank you for the summary on pandas. I think it's awesome for its use. And it is sort of more visually and sort of tangibly appealing than some of the other methods for handling data in Python. However, it is time now, folks, to move on to a segment we're calling what, Matt? Riddle me this. Did, did anything come in? Did anything come in? I I haven't got Slack open, but it's still called Riddle me this. Oh oh yes, it's still called Riddle me yeah. though. Riddle me this. Okay. Um, and we're gonna start this shindig off. Yeah, how, how is this gonna go? One of Matt's <laughs> favorite riddles. So I w will let him tell you the title that I assume he has come up with for this uh, for this question. What is it, Matt? Uh, magma come louder. Yes. Hilarious, and you'll see why in just a moment. So um, today's challenge is, wait, are we going to say this on air? I thought we were trying to uh, to uh, obfuscate this this puzzle. Um, no, we're, I'm not gonna, I'm not even going to tell you. It doesn't, it doesn't need, it, didn't need, it doesn't need obfuscating. It's, okay. Okay. it's original. You can't where cheat this, at it. I see. Where did this, <laughs> where did this puzzle come from? Well, allegedly, uh, and I, it's a rumor that Erwin Schrödinger started in his uh, book, What is Life, I think it's called. Um, he heard it from uh, Lord Kelvin, William Thompson, who of Kelvin temperature fame and transatlantic cables and whatnot. He uh, apparently devised it. So if you're, if you're looking for the answer, you can just go buy the book, Schrödinger's book. Or, or you could just go to Google. Except you can't because this is a different formulation, right? <laughs> or you could just go to Google. You, no, because no, oh, no. this is an original it's version. Obfuscated. Yeah. Anonymized. So Matt and I built a time machine. It's pretty awesome. It's shaped like a pipe organ, which shoots 30-foot flames out of the pipes. <laughs> Practical, really, I think. Um, so to travel um, in time, you you just encode your date into a specific musical scale, and you play it through the organ. Shoots flames everywhere. Boom! There you go. You, t you take it's no Delorean. In case anyone's trying to take notes here, this is all irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. This is, this is completely unrelated to the question. Uh, but I had to. Matt did the real work, so I had to write something down, right? Um, 
So in the process of, of uh, time traveling, we, we tend to set a lot of buildings on fire because we're shooting 30 foot flames uh, indoors. Um, but it doesn't matter, right? Because by the time uh, the building is like crumbling around us, we're, we're off in, uh, in the medieval, uh, the, in the Renaissance, stormy castles or whatever. Yeah, or more <laughs> like me in the, in the Miocene or the late Triassic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, I like it. Or whatever um, the future version of the Triassic is in this case. As long as we're not in the Anthropocene, right? Um, So we won't be in the Anthropocene anymore, that's for sure. (laughs) We came up with uh, the first use case for the time machine. We're going to use it to check your answer to this riddle that Matt has obfuscated from Lord Kelvin. Um, Riddle me this still. Yes, that's what it's called. So you can submit your answer, by the way, on swung.rocks, obviously, which is where we hang out day to day. Um, we also have an email address, and I'm going to release it right now to the um, web bots crawling around. Um, oh, he's frozen. He's frozen. Yeah. It's all over. That's it. He's re- he releases the, <laughs> the, the email he's, address. He's traveled back in time. <laughs> 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 okay, well, maybe he'll catch up with us five minutes ago. Um, yeah, he may be on his way into the future right now. So <laughs> while we wait for him, I can describe oh. the, the puzzle. Oh, he's back in a yeah. different... Wait! <laughs> <laughs> he, he has traveled into the future, but left his past <laughs> self behind. Okay, so uh, uh, leave it to me to, to crash the computer while I'm introducing a new segment. Uh, it's awesome. So I thought I had that figured out. Anyway, where was I? Oh, under did you mention this? Undersampledradio at gmail.com. So you can also submit your answer there. We prefer it on Slack, obviously, um, because it's awesomer. Um, but uh, that's that's yeah, where you submit. Yeah. Oh, well, I, I guess you, you can direct message us if you don't want anyone else to see your response. That's right. Um, and, could, are you guys seeing two of me? Yep. Yeah. Oh, um, okay. One bit frozen and one less frozen. Do we want people to show their working or do we not care about that? I don't think we care. I, I don't think we care. Uh, if you care to share, yeah. well, I'm not, because, well, you'll find out in a minute. You know, this is, this is one of those ballpark questions. <laughs> Uh, submit submit your answer privately because we want to um, we want to have we're we're going to give prizes <clears throat> or something which may just start in the form of accolades but eventually we'll move to t-shirts or whatever so submit your work privately I guess that's the best answer so Matt uh, without further ado take it away okay so um, like I say this is a new spin on an older puzzle uh, it, the older version is my favorite puzzle ever I think. Um, I have quite a few favorites, but it's definitely one of them. Top five. Well, our top 10. Well, it's definitely in the top 20. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we've, we've, so here's the puzzle. We've created, uh, let's say, a stable isotope, a new stable isotope of magnesium, magnesium 28.5. And uh, we're going to combine it with some silicate ions and some iron ions. Uh, to make a, a hyperstable new version of olivine, so iron, iron magnesium silicate. Um, like like olivine, it's named after a piece of something. Uh, it, it's called anchovine. <laughs> so we're, we're going to take 
Um, we're going to make uh, one liter of this uh, anchovine, and it's so highly recognizable, totally unique. We're the only people who can make it, and it lasts forever. Those are the assumptions. And we're going to chuck it into the mantle via the conveyor belt subduction zone uh, off Chile, let's say. Let's just say we can get it into the mantle. And we're going to let it mix there for however long it takes for something to mix completely into the mantle. So let's say that's two billion years or so. I'll, I'll buy it. I hope our time machine is up to it. Um, the, the, the length of time is not important. The point is that it mixes thoroughly. Now I would like to go to some, the, the nearest thing we can get to the mantle, which let's say is some hotspot volcanism. And I'm going to take one liter of what we'll call mantle, but obviously it's lava at that point. I'm going to take one liter, the same amount that we put in originally. What are the chances of getting any of our molecules of anchovine back? Um, and if they're non-zero, how many molecules would I expect? And why? Well, a wide bit, you know, I guess uh, it's up to you if you show you're working, we said. I'm interested in your working because I'll show mine. Uh, uh, and obviously, it's a bit of a ballpark answer <laughs> on the grounds that we're counting molecules. <laughs> so how was that, everybody? Did we do a good job? You can... <laughs> Tell us how good of a job we did on software. Um, quite drawn out. I think it was more succinct in, uh, in Schrodinger's book. Yes, and also in written form here on our show notes. Um, so we will next week we'll give you the answer to the question, and we'll give you a new puzzle, a new riddle me this for now. Um, Lucas, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was great. It was awesome. Again, guys, you can pick Lucas's brain at the Paris Hackathon if you want to come over. And if not, read his blog posts. They're awesome. And we will see you. Well, and he's also, oh, he's also always on Software Underground, and he's on Twitter. Yep. So it's very easy to uh, very easy to stalk Lucas and or ask him questions about millimeter cube samples of rock and whatnot. True. See you guys next week. See you, bye. <laughs> <laughs>